Well, I invite you to keep your bulletin out with 1 Peter 2 in front of you or your Bible. Um, Peter started his letter in chapter 1 by grounding us in the real grace of a vertical relationship with God. And now uh, he is going to and has already started uh, to urge us to grow in the real life of our horizontal relationship with people, with the people where we worship and work and live and play. And so uh, the last couple of weeks we saw that God has uh, shown us that we are his family. And so uh, he talks about the real life of relationship with one another as God's family. Well, this week uh, he's going to show us that we are God's temple and priests. And the focus will be more on our relationship with our neighbors and the nations and the next generation. So would you pray with me as we dive in? Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. And we ask now that um, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight our rock, and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I learned something new this week about uh, military combat. And I, I saw this phrase, uh, this military term called the commander's intent. And so I contacted my resident military buff and uh, veteran, Jim West. And I said, what is this? commander's intent stuff mean. And so this is a summary of what I learned from him about this. He said that in combat, the commander's intent is the communication about the larger purpose of an operation. So it's, it's like a boiled down vision statement for a combat mission. Um, and the commander gives this vision statement so that every soldier understands the part they play in the operation as a whole. Soldiers on the ground need to know the main objective so that, whenever they, so that whatever the enemy throws at them, they have the freedom to be flexible without losing sight of the main objective. So the commander's intent, a mission vision of what every soldier is to accomplish uh, and it's succinct enough and big enough that every soldier can be flexible and still achieve that goal no matter what the enemy throws at them. And then Jim gave me a great illustration of, uh, of what that looks like um, in the home repair ministry. So last Saturday, um, we were on a big project and there were all kinds of people there. And Jim said, so if you're a crew on the home repair ministry project and you've only been given this particular work scope, uh, say, throw away all the trash you see. Well, if you don't understand the larger vision of, that we have of beautifying and restoring the property for the healthy use of a family, you're going you're gonna to miss an opportunity an opportunity like Ann Perry and Shea Carrico had when they found uh, a planter that was made from an old tire, and they, they decided that this wasn't, you know, they could have just said, well, the mission was throw away stuff. They could have tossed it. But instead, 
they grabbed this planter, they went out and got some potting soil and some flowers, and they planted flowers in the planter. Um, that planter, now full of life and color, serves as a picture for those of us who are working on this project. It's a picture of restoration and renewal, the restoration and renewal that we all long to see happen. Uh, so the commander's intent is actually, we're going to restore this property for the good of this family. Um, but he never said, find a planter and plant plants. But good soldiers like Anne and Shay knew what their commander ultimately wanted. And now we're all encouraged by the, by the picture they've left us. By the way, there's a picture of that planter on our Facebook page. Um, well, the Bible articulates our commander's intent by painting a picture of the mission accomplished all the way at the end of the book in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a picture of the new heaven and the new earth and, and a new Jerusalem coming down. The new heaven and the new earth kind of give us a picture of how expansive uh, the new creation will be, while the new Jerusalem highlights that the purpose of the new creation is to be a dwelling, pa a dwelling place for God. So, in the very last chapters of Revelation, we get a picture of the entire cosmos and the new creation becoming the dwelling place of God. But that picture uh, actually is a picture of the mission that was to be fulfilled and that was begun by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that the progress of that mission can be traced all the way through the Bible. Let me explain what I'm saying. Adam and Eve were the first priests of God. Eden was the first temple of God, the first dwelling place where God would dwell with men and women. And in Genesis 2.15, God said to them, uh, well, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, uh, to work it, to cultivate it, and to keep it, to guard it. Well, those same two words, to work and keep, are used later on to describe the role of the priests in the temple. And so Adam and Eve's mission was to cultivate Eden as a garden temple so that it would flourish as a place for God and people to dwell together. It, it, it was to become an ever-expanding place for God and people to work together to magnify and multiply the glory, grace, goodness, and greatness of God for the good and gladness of all of God's people. So their mission was to cultivate, but their mission was also to keep and guard this garden temple from evil. Their role was to keep Satan and sin from entering in to spoil the place and the people of God. And of course we know that they failed to do that. Um, they should have stepped on the snake or kicked him out of the garden and kept the evil out of the temple, but they didn't. So then, God chose Israel to be his people, and he chose new priests and a new temple. Uh, so the tabernacle, that was this tent of meeting where God dwelt in the midst of his people in the wilderness, uh, became a symbol of the presence of God among his people. And then later on, when they reached the land of promise, they built 
a temple. And the temple at Jerusalem was to be a place where God was there among his people. He would be their God, and they would be his people as he promised. Israel's priests were then set apart to cultivate and keep the tabernacle in the temple, which are, again, serving as a picture of the new creation, new heavens and earth that will be the temple that fills the cosmos. And so their job was to cultivate the relationship between God and sinners by sacrifices for sins. Their job was to cultivate the people's response to God's mercy and worship through song, scripture, and sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And their job was to keep the temple holy and pure by keeping out anything unclean. All of this was to point ultimately to Jesus as the true high priest, the true sacrifice, the true temple. And so when the word Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, this symbol became a reality. The God of glory came to dwell with us in the tent called Jesus. The true temple is Christ's body. And so now Peter is going to show us that we are united to Christ, the living stones joined to Jesus, the cornerstone. And so that in that way, we become the true house of God, the true temple of God. So Peter is reminding us of our commander's intent. What, what is the mission? What's he after? And I love, I think I put this in your bulletin, I love the way G.K. Beale summarizes all of this. He says, the church as the dwelling place of God, not the building, but the people, the church as the dwelling place of God must expand until one day it fills the entire heaven and earth, the entire cosmos becomes the dwelling place of God. Our mission as the true temple is to extend his dwelling place throughout the earth by our witness until that temple is completed. So that's where we are in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. We're going to start in verse 4. Let me remind you of what Peter says first. He says, As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5 actually serve as a summary of everything Peter is trying to say in this little section. He's first going to talk about Jesus, the cornerstone, and then he's going to talk about the church. And then he unpacks those two statements, those two truths, in verses 6 through 12. So in verse 4, for example, Jesus tells us that, I mean, Peter tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone of a new temple that God is building. But then in verses 6 and 8, he's going to explain who Jesus is and that there are two ways that people will relate to this cornerstone named Jesus. And then in verse 5, Peter tells us that those who are believers are living stones in the new temple, the spiritual house of God, and are priests in the new temple. And then in verses 6 through 12, he explains what it means to be stones in that temple and how we're to live as priests in that temple. So, that's kind of how these verses break up. Verses 4 and 5 are a summary. Verses 6 through 12 unpack uh, the summary. So let's, uh, let's look at each of these briefly if we can. First, Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone 
of a new temple. And he uses that colorful picture from the Old Testament prophecy to illustrate who Jesus is and how we relate to him. Well, first, the first question Peter deals with is, what does, uh, what does God think of Jesus? Excuse me as I get my water. What does God think of Jesus? Well, listen to what he says. In verse 4, Jesus is a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And he says the same thing again in verse 6. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Jesus is God's precious plan to make dead people alive so that he can dwell in them as his holy temple. Remember, his mission is for the entire cosmos to be a dwelling place for God and his people. And so Jesus is God's precious plan to make that happen. He says that he's a living stone, so Jesus is alive. We know this. He's alive, he's resurrected, but he's also the source of life. He says in verse 4 that Jesus is precious. That, that means that he's honored and treasured by God. And that he's a cornerstone that's been selected and set in place. A chosen cornerstone laid in place. Jesus is the cornerstone for God's new temple. He's the foundation of God's plan to fulfill his promise to dwell with his people forever. So what that means is, Jesus is the only way that people who are dead in their sins will be restored to a living, loving relationship with their creator. He's it. He's the only way that we can dwell with God in peace. And Peter's only repeating here what he said to the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4. This is what he said in Acts 4, 11 and 12. Peter speaking, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what does God think of Jesus? Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone that God has laid as the foundation of his new temple, the church. And so now people, Peter will address the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? I've told you what God thinks of Jesus. Now what are you going to do with Jesus? And he says you have two options. You can believe in him or not believe in him. There are those who believe and there are those who do not believe. So let's unpack what this means a little bit. How do believers relate to Jesus? Um, he says, I'm laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. What does it look like to believe in this living stone? Three things. You adore him. You attach yourself to him, and you align, you're aligned to him. Believers adore him. Verse 4, um, Peter said, as you come to him, a living stone. Um, that word was used in the Greek Old Testament to talk about a priest coming to God in an act of worship. And so we come to him to worship him. Believers in this cornerstone come to him to adore him. 
He's chosen and precious. We believe about Jesus what God believes about Jesus, that he's valuable, that he's honored. So we adore Jesus, but believers then attach themselves to him. We, we nestle up next to this cornerstone, this, this foundational piece. Whoever believes in him, Peter says. And what does that mean? It means to rely on Jesus as your only hope to know God. And it also means to rely on Jesus in order to be a part of what God is doing in the world. So, to attach ourselves to Jesus, to believe in him, is to join ourselves to this cornerstone by faith. But we not only adore him and attach ourselves to him, we are, we are being aligned to him. Peter said, as you come to him, you yourselves are being built up into a spiritual house. The cornerstone is the stone that sets the alignment for the foundation and the walls of the building. Everything depends on that cornerstone. He determines the direction of our lives. And so if you come to Jesus, you come to him expecting that he will build you up into his house. He will shape you. He will fit you. He will align you to himself. So, You can come to church, but the question Peter would have for you this morning is, are you just coming to church, or are you coming to Jesus? Because apart from Jesus, there's no reason for us to meet. Come to Jesus to adore him, to attach yourself to him, and to be aligned to him. And then Peter says, well, here's, here's the result of what that believing in this cornerstone would look like. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So there's honor for you who believe. Not be put to shame. This is important to the people who are reading Peter's letter because they lived in an honor-shame culture. Um, the reason Peter is writing this letter is because they're suffering from the shame that's been heaped on them from the culture and the people around them. He's trying to encourage them that if they attach themselves to Jesus, though the world may shame them for it, they will not be put to shame. And then he says, the honor is for you who believe. That word honor is the same word as precious in verses 4 and 6 that refer to Jesus. So if you adore God's precious and honored stone and attach and align yourself to him, then you will be honored and precious when it matters most. At the end of all things, when Jesus is fully and finally revealed, if you have attached yourself to the cornerstone, Jesus, then you, in God's sight, will be precious and honored. And Peter's reminding us that for those of us who trust Jesus, yes, there may be shame and dishonor in the sight of the world now, but don't be surprised because Jesus is also shamed and dishonored now. But like Jesus and through Jesus, we are precious and honored in the sight of God forever. So no matter what the world is telling you about how foolish it is for you to follow Jesus, there's no shame, but only honor in attaching yourself to that cornerstone. So that's how believers 
respond to Jesus, the cornerstone. What about unbelievers? He says, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What does it look like to not believe in Jesus as the living stone? It's to reject him. Reject him as the chosen and precious plan for enabling human beings to dwell with God. The chosen stone has been rejected by those who wish to build their own good life. So, if you don't believe in Jesus, you reject him, but then he says you stumble over him. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So, instead of uh, trusting Jesus, they trip over him. And then I thought this is fascinating. Why do some people, when they come upon Jesus, trip over him rather than trust him? He says in verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word. Disobey the word. What's the word? The word is what the apostles preached about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so he's saying that people who trip over Jesus, they don't believe what the apostles have said about who Jesus is, what Jesus has said about himself. They don't believe the good news that was announced about Jesus. And here's what I thought was interesting. Notice that Peter did not say that they don't understand what the apostles have announced about Jesus. He said that they they don't want to obey it. They don't want to submit to it. It made me think that this is so true of us, isn't it? Maybe it's not that I can't get my mind around Jesus. Maybe it's just that I won't bow my knee to him. So with all of that, the question that Peter is asking, the question that Jesus would ask all of us this morning is, what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with him? Our only options, Peter says, are to trust him or trip over him. And so I would ask you this morning, and I especially want to ask uh, our younger generations, um, it's easy to grow up in the church and to go, I've heard about Jesus all my life. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I don't have a choice. But I want to ask you, have you come to the place where you have, in your heart, by your will, made the choice. Do I trust this Jesus to be the cornerstone of my life? Do I trust Jesus to be my only hope for having a relationship with God? Or am I going to trip over him and I just keep thinking, eh, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. I want to encourage you um, that I would love to have that kind of conversation with you. If you're at a place where you're like, you know, I don't know if I really have trusted Jesus in that cornerstone kind of way. I keep tripping over some things about him. Let's get together. I'll buy you lunch or coffee or something. Something. And we'll talk. Because I would love to have that conversation with you. Do you trust him? Or are you tripping over him? And of course, your parents would love to have that conversation with you. 
and other people sitting all around you would love to have the conversation with you. Okay, Peter has established that Jesus is the living stone, the cornerstone, and he's described what it means to believe in him, what it, believe, what it means not to believe in him. But now, he's going to move and tell us that for those of us who have believed, uh, God has something to say to us about our position before God and our purpose in the world. Our position before God is that we are living stones in the new temple of God. Our purpose in the world is that we're priests in that temple. So let's look quickly at these. What is our position before God? Who are we? We are living stones in the new temple of God. Verse 5, you yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. This is good news to us as exiles because we feel like we're outcasts increasingly, maybe, in our culture. And our culture may increasingly hate us, but there's good news. Good news. We are living stones. We're connected to the living stone. We live because Jesus lives no matter what the world tells us. Good news. We're God's spiritual house. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Paul Paul talks about The Holy Spirit lives in us as individuals, as temples of God, but then the Holy Spirit lives in us collectively. Mountain Fellowship, no matter what God has called us to, we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit lives in us. He dwells in us. And good news, we're being built up. I may have said this before, but several years ago I visited a church and they were doing some renovations, and they had a sign on the door that said, uh, Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church. Please excuse the mess. Under, uh, renovations are underway. Jesus is building us up as his house, and it's going to get messy. And so we have to give each other grace as he's building and chiseling each of us living stones and setting us into place in his church that it's going to look messy sometimes. But we can have confidence that even when it looks messy, Jesus has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that's our position before God. Now what's our purpose in the world? What are we to do? That's who we are. What are we to do? We are priests in the new temple of God. He says in verse 4 that we are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, he says, you're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. What do we do as priests? The same thing we do as living stones. We adore him, attach ourselves to him, and align ourselves to him. Listen to what he says. In verse 4, he says, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as priests, we adore Jesus by offering spiritual sacrifices. They're There were two kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. There were sacrifices for sins, and there were sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise in response to the sacrifice for sin. Well, we know that Jesus has fulfilled the sacrifice for sin once and for all, so those are not the sacrifices we are to offer. We are to offer continually with our lips and our lives the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving because Jesus is the sacrifice for our sin. And so what I want to do for the rest of this time as I go through each of these things that we we as priests are called to do 
I just would like to pray about each of those. So, pray with me. Father, when we gather here on Sundays, would you help us to adore Jesus, our cornerstone, the rock of our salvation, the one who is the ultimate and only sacrifice for our sins? Would you help us, by your Spirit, to be an adoring church that our worship... um, our quiet, our singing, our praying, our listening would all be adoration of Jesus. And then when we scatter, Father, would you, would you make us priests who lead other sinners to adore, to adore Jesus for who he is? Would you make us that kind of people? Amen. So, we adore Jesus by offering spiritual sacrifices. Then we adore Jesus by proclaiming His excellencies, verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, I think this is on the front of your bulletin, but E. Stanley Jones has this great line, and it's so helpful to me. He said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, oh, look what the world has come to. But they said in delight. Look what has come to the world. Speaking of Jesus, I think that's the essence of what Peter's getting at here, that we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness into light. We get our eyes off of saying, look what this world has come to. Well, we're exiles. This shouldn't surprise us. But our eyes as God's priests should be on, look what God has done in the world through Jesus. And draw others to look at him as well. And so, Father, we ask that when we gather here on Sundays, that you would help us to adore Jesus by hearing and believing again the good news that he's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then we ask that when you scatter us during the week, that you would make us priests who quit pointing our fingers at the world saying, look what this place has come to and continue to point our finger to Jesus and say, look what has come into the world. Would you make us that kind of people? Amen. And then as priests, we stay attached to Jesus as people who need his mercy. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, Father, I pray that when we gather here on Sundays, that you would attach us to Jesus again by faith. Remind us that we are people of God who need the mercy of God. And help us to come hungry and thirsty for the mercy offered to us in the bread and the cup. And then, Father, when you scatter us during the week, make us priests who would lead our neighbors to attach themselves to Jesus and his mercy. Let this mountain see that we are needy sinners who feed only on God's mercy. Make us mercy beggars who show other mercy beggars where we found the bread of life. Would you do that for your glory, we ask. Amen. And then finally, as priests, we stay aligned to Jesus in our wanting and in the way we live. He says in verses 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The priest, again, was to be holy and to keep God's dwelling place holy. Remember how Adam failed to keep evil out of the garden temple? It is our role as priests to abstain from the passions of our me-first heart, the passions of our flesh. It is, it is our role as priests to be constantly aware of the warfare that's being waged against our hearts and the hearts of the people in this room. That the passions, of our, the passions or desires or lusts of our me-first heart are constantly waging war against us. And, and by passions or lusts, it's not, it's not simply a sexual kind of lust or passion. Um, Dan Allender has a great definition of lust. He says it's, it's desires that are out of bounds. In other words, I'm desiring something that is out of bounds that God says I shouldn't desire. Or it's desires that are out of balance. So that could be good things that I desire, um, but then I desire too much. And so, Peter is saying, as priests, we are to ourselves and help one another to abstain from those warring passions, whether it be sexual passions, passions for food, um, passions for stuff, or passions for glory. We are to wage war back by the power of the Spirit, and we're to help each other. And I, I just want to say to you, if you are in the midst of a battle right now against your me-first heart wanting things that you know you shouldn't want or wanting things too much, we'll help you. I need help too. I need people to help me with mine, so we'll help you. I wouldn't want anyone ever to sit in these chairs and think, I'm too bad, I've got too many powerful desires in me that I can't control, there's nobody that can help me. Don't ever think that. Please, come. Come to me, come to any of the elders you're going to see up here in a minute. Come, go to uh, women in the church that you respect and trust. Let's help each other wage war against the passions of our me-first hearts. That's what priests do for one another. So, Father, would you make us a people who are aware of the war that's going on in our hearts. Make us people who fight by your Spirit against our me-first desires and who help each other do that and who live honorably so that the world will see your glory in the way we live. Amen. And that's, that's the ultimate thing, the glory of God to be seen. When the tabernacle was in the midst of the camp of Israel, the cloud of fire uh, by I mean the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day was the glory of God resting on the tabernacle so that all around could see for miles the glory of God dwells among his people. And then when Solomon built his temple, the glory of God came and rested on that place. And now we are the place where the glory of God dwells.
And would you pray with me and work together with us that we would be the kind of congregation where people will see the glory of God resting on us. Um, I love the image of those great Gothic cathedrals um, that were built. Here's, a, here's an example. This is a, a model that Christine's grandmother had of uh, Notre Dame in Paris, uh, a glorious cathedral. Um, these cathedrals uh, were built intentionally to teach the people about who God is, about his character, to proclaim the excellencies of God. Um, in those days, many believers did not have the Bible in their own language in their own house, like we have 12 copies of. Um, So what the builders of these cathedrals would do is they would build uh, Bible lessons into the buildings. The stained glass windows would tell the stories of the gospel. Uh, Even the way they designed for light to stream through those windows into the room, the way that the ceiling was exalted high so that you would come in and (gasps) your breath would be taken in awe. They were teaching us how to relate to God and how God relates to us. But the most visible and important feature of these cathedrals is that they were shaped like a cross. They were cruciform, cross-shaped. So the central message of God's church um, is that Christ was crucified for us. And we are to proclaim the excellencies of that cornerstone. That he is the only way that we can dwell with him and he can dwell with us. And his mission is for us, not as a lavish cathedral, but as a living community of God's people. His mission is for us to expand, for us to find other living stones to attach to Jesus so that together we can be a part of the commander's intent to spread his glory of his dwelling throughout the cosmos forever. Father, would you make Mountain Fellowship that kind of church so that in the little place you've put us, using the little bit of resources that you've given us, that we would be that kind of dwelling place for you. And that our neighbors and the nations and the next generation would look and see the glory of God resting on us. And they would know the grace of God because they know us and they come and taste it here. So remind us again that it's all about the cross as we come to this meal And we ask that you would feed us, feed us with your mercy so that we can turn and tell other mercy beggars where to find it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.